Don't let your legacy IT systems cost you money, innovation, and a place at the digital table of the future. You can change your systems and the economics of IT with software from Red Hat. See how at redhat.com. It's August 2015, and Christian Provisionato is in Savona, Italy, on the beach with his girlfriend, when he gets a call from his boss. Christian worked as a bodyguard for a security company in Milan. He's got this honor and loyalty tattoo on his biceps. He wears these dark sunglasses. He's a burly guy and a little bit intimidating. He worked mostly society events in Italy, like Giorgio Armani's 40th anniversary party. This particular job was a little different. His boss needed him to fly to Mauritania in West Africa. He was told to bring a dark suit and accompany someone to a meeting with the government there. His boss made it sound like it was an emergency. My brother uh, didn't see any uh, danger. He said, okay, I have to go there just for uh, a presentation. That's Maurizio Provisionato. He's Christian's brother. We just do the demo in front of the Mauritanian government, and uh, it seemed like an easy job. It turned out that this wasn't an easy job at all. Christian was arrested by the Mauritanian government, imprisoned, and held hostage there. And he's still there. What was supposed to be a one-week assignment has turned into a 16-month nightmare. All because he unknowingly walked into a cyber weapons deal, right as it was going bad. Hi, I'm Aki Ito. I'm Jordan Robertson. And this week on Decrypted, we're taking you deep into the underworld of cybercrime. This is a world of offshore bank accounts and meetings that never happen. A world where governments and organizations pay huge sums of money to spy on each other and on their own people. As we spend more of our lives on our digital devices, the market for these cyber weapons is exploding. But first, let's explain why Christian went to Mauritania in the first place and the deal that he was supposed to be closing. For that, I need to introduce you to Manish Kumar. Manish is an up-and-coming entrepreneur in the cyber arms dealing world. But he came from humble beginnings. He watched YouTube videos to teach himself how to code in a rural village in northern India. Yeah, so let's talk about this market for cyber weapons. It sounds scary, and it is. You're selling the ability to take advantage of someone's, someone's software or phone or hardware that, that's, that's being targeted. And um, having the ability to is very advantageous to lots of individuals. So um, there's a lot of money involved for sure to, to be able to purchase and, and use these things. That's Andrew Blake, who's a researcher at Lookout, which is a company that specializes in mobile security. We had him come into our San Francisco studio to walk us through how this market works and some of the more technical details of our story today that we're going to be getting into a little bit later. And when he said that there's a lot of money at stake, he means a lot of money. Researchers estimate that this market is worth billions of dollars. Okay, so back to Manish. 
He's made a bit of a name for himself in this world. He wrote a book called The Secret of Hacking that got the attention of the Indian government. They asked Manish to use his hacking skills to crack into China's secret operating system, a computer network they were using to spy on countries like India. But Manish is really entrepreneurial. He wanted to be more than just the guy who does odd hacking jobs for the Indian government. He realized that the market for selling offensive technology, as in the technology that a government could use to launch an attack, break into a network, or spy on another country, yeah, that market is much bigger. This kind of technology that Manish was selling, people call it all kinds of things like cyber arms, cyber weapons, exploits, attacks. What you need to know is that these are tools to hack and spy on other people. Now, Manish wouldn't talk to us on the record for this episode, and I think you will understand why pretty shortly. But I did go to India to meet him. For some reason, he let me, a reporter, check out the spots where he used to meet his clients and learn about how he built his business. Manish is tall with slick back hair. He's handsome, like he could have ended up on a Bollywood set if he had made different life choices. And his company, Wolf Intelligence, which is based in Munich, looks pretty good too. They have an office in Dubai, another in Romania, a Swiss CEO, and booths at every major military technology conference around the world. Yeah, these are all the trappings of a respectable boutique surveillance company. But. When you meet Manish in person, it doesn't take long to realize only part of the image is real, and part is for show. He's still learning about this world of enemy hunting spy technology. Yeah, like how to be in the room when the really big deals go down. So back in December 2014, Manish flies to Doha, Qatar, and sets up a booth at an industry fair called Millipol Qatar, held at the Doha Convention Center. I'm reading its website here that says it's the leading international exhibition dedicated to homeland security in the Middle East, and it's held under the authority of the Prime Minister of Qatar. So it's not like they're meeting in a dark back alleyway, right? It's actually a perfectly legitimate conference. Yeah, absolutely. Imagine the 65,000 square foot convention center, with buyers from more than 60 countries checking out armored vehicles, machine guns, and surveillance systems. It's there that Manish makes the deal of a lifetime. So he manages to pique the interest of a couple of government officials from the small African state of Mauritania. Manish gives them a more detailed demo. Within a month, Mauritania signs a $2.5 million contract with Manish. He'll get paid in installments. This is certainly the biggest splash in his short career as a cyber arms dealer. Now, by its very nature, the cyber arms market operates under what economists politely call a trust deficit. <laughs> that means that because everyone's trying so hard to cover their tracks, it's basically impossible to know who you're dealing with, whether your business partner is a thief, a scammer, or something more dangerous. If you're going through kind of the backdoor channels and the black markets and things like that, it's a little bit of the wild west, right? You're, you're selling these things out there.、Um, you don't know who you're selling them to, really. So, I mean, you might be selling them to someone that's trying to set you up. You might be selling them to someone that wants to use them maliciously. You might be selling them to someone that just wants to get them and use them for research purposes. As these things go, Mauritania swims pretty close to the bottom of the Shark Tank. 
It has a population of only 4 million people, and it's had 10 coups since 1960 when it gained independence. It's one of the last places on Earth where slavery still exists, and the government is regularly condemned for human rights abuses. But Manish is a hired gun, and there's a lot of money on the line in deals like these. And he's not particularly bothered by that. The way Manish views the world is, if he doesn't make these deals, someone else will. But right now, he's trying to fix a more immediate problem, which is that as part of the whole $2.5 million package, Manish agreed to deliver the Mauritanians a piece of technology that he actually doesn't have. What exactly that technology is, that's coming up. But first, a word from our sponsor. Inside the most successful organizations, IT has gone from supporting the business to driving the business. But the costs of legacy infrastructure can impede this progress. Budgets can't stretch enough to pay for digital innovation at the speed required. No one gets a blank check. The answer is to change the economics of your IT by shifting from ownership to use, from licenses to subscriptions, from proprietary to open. Change the economics of IT with open software from Red Hat. Learn more at redhat.com. Okay, so before the break, Manish had managed to close a $2.5 million deal with the Mauritanian government. And included in the deal was a piece of highly sophisticated surveillance software. And Jordan, until you brought the story to me, I didn't even know that this thing existed. Yeah, I didn't know much about it either. It's called a silent SMS attack. When you want to essentially hack into someone's phone, you need them to execute like a piece of software on their device to take advantage of the vulnerabilities and, and install the malicious software on the device. Now, how you actually get the user to exploit their phone is a number of different ways. You know, in the past, there's things like you can install a malicious application that will take advantage and break the sandbox and and break the security um, features of the device. But that requires tricking the user into installing a malicious app through a phishing campaign or something like that. So what Andrew is describing here, these are those emails that are like, you know, (laughs) click on this link to win $10 million right now. Exactly. You as the user need to click on a link. That triggers a whole process that allows the hacker to take control of your phone. But there's also another way in. Phone carriers like Verizon and AT&T often send invisible text messages to their customers to get them to update their software. It's as if they have a backdoor into your phone because you, the owner of the phone, don't have to click on or download or open anything. It just happens automatically. And because it happens in total stealth, it's called a silent SMS. Now, as you can imagine, this pathway is usually guarded with tons and tons of security walls. But if a hacker manages to find a security hole that allows them that secret access to anyone's phone, it's the holy grail for hackers. And because like all of our lives are now on our our phones in this case, right? All of our information, banking, personal, all on one single device for us now that they they become these highly valuable targets because everything is in one spot now for us to access. Um, Even the way in which we log into our systems, our two-factor tokens and things like that are all, all located on our phone device. So having the ability to get in quickly and silently is very advantageous for um, these kinds of targeted attacks that are out there. 
once they have their software on there and they've you know they've taken advantage of it, they can do whatever they want. They they basically have a backdoor into your device to do to do anything. So this is really powerful stuff. Something only maybe a handful of very sophisticated players can pull off. And this is the technology Manish needs to get his hands on. So he flies to Israel, the beating heart of cyber warfare. Through a network of connections, Manish is told that someone called Dudi Sternberg, a cyber weapons broker, might have what he's looking for. And Manish goes to Dudi's leather-appointed offices in a high-rise inside Tel Aviv. To get into Dudi's office, Manish has to go through a branch of a local bank with metal detectors set up at the door. Manish is very impressed. Dudi wants a million dollars for this piece of software, and he wants a big part of that cash up front. Now this is a real dilemma for Manish. In this murky world of cyber weapons, the normal rules of business, they don't apply. Yeah, if someone violates the terms of a contract, if they don't pay or if they don't deliver, it's not like you can just go sue them, right? There's nobody enforcing the law. And the problem here is Manish is starting to suspect that the Mauritanian government is probably never going to pay him the final $1 million of his contract. And at the same time, Manish isn't sure if he can trust Duty, the Israeli broker, to deliver a real silent SMS exploit. So there's a very real risk here that Manish would end up with basically no profit if he pays duty, but Mauritania doesn't pay him. So Manish decides to buy time. He doesn't give duty the down payment, which means he never gets the silent SMS. In the meantime, in Mauritania, government officials are getting antsy. They've paid $1.5 million to Manish, but they haven't received the most important part of the software that they were promised. And there was an Indian technician Manish had sent to Mauritania to help the government use the software that Manish had delivered to them so far. But as soon as the technician arrived in Mauritania, the government confiscated that technician's passport, took the technician as hostage, and Manish had to find a way to get the guy out. At this point, Manish is wondering, maybe he can convince them to accept a package without the silent SMS. Maybe they'll take a discount. And to set up another meeting with the Mauritanian government, Manish decides he wants a white European guy with his staff to do it. Now, the reason for this is Manish is very concerned about being discriminated against because of his ethnicity. So his plan is to get white Europeans to accompany him and his staff on important meetings to add what he views is additional legitimacy to his company. That's when Christian Previsionato, our Italian bodyguard, comes in. Manish had worked with Christian's boss in the past, so Christian's boss called Christian and asked him to fly out to Mauritania immediately. Uh, my brother has no time to check, to investigate, because normally when you receive an offer, a job offer, uh, you know, you, you have to prepare and you have to study everything. Uh, but uh, they push so hard, my brother, they say, oh, it, it's an emergency, you have to fly uh, tomorrow morning. So Pisa doesn't give the time to my brother to, to check to what's really is going on the place, you know? 
So this is uh, really a, a trap. And things got weird right away as soon as Christian arrived in Mauritania. A man with no teeth meets him at the airport and takes his passport away. Christian was told this was just standard procedure, something he needs to do to get a visa, but then he doesn't get the passport back. And when Christian arrives at the apartment that Manish had prepared for him, there's another Italian there called Leo Reitano, who's about to leave after staying for a week there. And he warns Christian that there's something fishy going on. Now remember, Christian doesn't know any of the background at this point that we've been telling you today. That he had walked into the middle of a high stakes deal that's disintegrating by the day. And after he hangs around for a week, Manish calls off the meeting. He just can't come up with a solution and he simply runs out of time. At which point Christian's boss starts to send him a frenzied series of WhatsApp messages. He tells Christian to leave the apartment that Manish's company provided, to move to a commercially run hotel, to try the German embassy because there's no Italian embassy there. Then on September 1st, two weeks after he arrived in Mauritania, Christian disappeared. His boss, his girlfriend, his brother, they all lost contact with him. You know, the, the, the first 24 hours, you think, uh, okay, uh, stay calm because maybe there is uh, some problem with the network, with the, the communication, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, Middle Africa, so maybe uh, sometime can happen that. But uh, after the, the second day, uh, I start to understand that, that yeah, maybe some problem uh, was ongoing. On 3rd uh, September, I received a call uh, from uh, the Italian consul in uh, Morocco to tell me that my brother was arrested from the uh, Mauritanian government. That's Maurizio Provisionato, Christian's brother. Christian was charged with defrauding the Mauritanian state and money laundering. His family was allowed to visit him a couple of times, and his brother was shocked to find out the conditions that Christian was held in for the first few months. I, I had the possibility to, to spoke with him. He say uh, the condition was really bad. Uh, was uh, a room uh, really dirty. Uh, the bed was uh, really bad. Uh, and another point is uh, for six months, he... Uh, they gave to him just rice and water, rice and water, and nothing else. Uh, so the problem is my brother is diabetic, and uh, for a, a diabetic person, uh, the rice is like a poison. So my brother, in this moment, uh, is still alive, but is a miracle. And the fight to get Christian back has turned into this international affair. Top-level diplomats from Italy and Mauritania met on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly in September, and multiple other meetings after that. Now that the two governments are in talks, Christian's brother says he's held in better conditions, but Mauritania simply won't let him go. Uh, well, uh, Jordan, uh, we are tired. We are really tired because uh, it's uh, 16 months that we fight every day 
to found the truth, to try to uh, to understand what is happened there. We try to involve all journalists in in Italy, but uh, the ninety percent of the media and the journalists in Italy, they don't want to talk about this story. Mauritania says that they'll release Christian if they get their $1.5 million back. And there's been some speculation in Italy that the government might pay the money. As for Manish, he's still trying to get Christian back too. But he's unwilling to give back the $1.5 million that Mauritania has already paid him. And even though Mauritania is demanding that he come back to resolve the dispute in person, after seeing what happened to Christian, Manish won't return himself. In October, Manish tried to set up a meeting at a neutral location outside of Mauritania, but the government official never showed. And in the meantime, Manish says that he's been busy building his own company, business has been booming. Manish said he just landed a $500,000 deal with the Egyptian government. And that's it for this week's Decrypted. Thanks for listening. We'd love to know what you thought of this show. You can send a voice message to our producer, Pia, at P-G-A-D-K-A-R-I at Bloomberg.net or write to me on Twitter. I'm at JordanR1000. And I'm at Aki Ito7. Be sure to subscribe to Decrypted on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a rating and a review. It helps more listeners find our show. This episode was produced by Pia Gedkari, Magnus Henriksen, and Liz Smith. Jim Ailey edited Jordan's accompanying Business Week story, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Business Week and Bloomberg.com slash Tech. Alec McCabe is head of Bloomberg Podcasts. We'll see you next week. Don't let your legacy IT systems cost you money, innovation, and a place at the digital table of the future. You can change your systems and the economics of IT with software from Red Hat. See how at redhat.com.